Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute's panel discussion entitled Differentiating DeFi, Understanding Efforts to Regulate Decentralized Finance. My name is Jennifer Schulp, and I'm the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. The bankruptcy of crypto exchange FTX has led to congressional hearings and calls to further scrutinize and regulate cryptocurrency. But often lost in the news cycle, and also often lost in the regulatory debate, is an important difference between centralized entities and projects that are decentralized. FTX, which allowed users to trade in cryptocurrencies, was very much a centralized entity, and at its heart, a traditional middleman that took possession of people's assets and kept the books. Decentralized finance takes cryptocurrency's innovation of allowing users to store and send value without the intermediation of third parties a step further by not only disintermediating token transfers, but also a variety of other financial transactions, from taking out loans to creating novel insurance arrangements. DeFi provides alternatives to centralized marketplaces, allowing users to self-custody their own tokens and employing different solutions to organize sales. Such decentralized projects are written in open source code that is public by design and transactions are publicly documented on a blockchain ledger. But how does DeFi compare to centralized or traditional finance in terms of its risks and benefits? And how should regulation take into account these distinctions? Today, we'll explore what it means for financial instruments and exchanges, as well as networked organizations, to be decentralized. The proper role of regulators when confronting decentralized financial markets, and the future of financial technology policy and innovation. We have a truly fantastic group with us today to discuss these issues. Linda Jang is the General Counsel and Chief Regulatory Officer at the Crypto Council for Innovation. A veteran in financial regulation, Linda has worked at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, the Treasury Department, and the U.S. Senate, among others. She has taught at both Georgetown and Duke Law Schools and has held policy roles at the Center Consortium and the startup Transparent Financial Systems. She recently edited a book on open banking and authored a book chapter entitled DeFi Protocol Risks, The Paradox of Crypto Finance. Dane Lund is the director of Alliance Foundation and a core contributor at Alliance Dow, a Web3 accelerator and community of Web3 founders, investors, and thought leaders. Dane focuses on governance design, tooling, and decentralization for Alliance and for the accelerator's cohort members. He is also the managing member of Lund Ventures, which advises founders building companies at the intersection of law and finance. Dane began his career as a litigation attorney focusing on financial services matters and transitioned to investment banking before taking on his current roles. Tiffany Smith is a partner at the law firm Wilmer Hale. Tiffany has over a decade of experience advising and representing financial institutions regarding compliance with the federal securities laws and regulations. She regularly advises cryptocurrency market participants, including exchanges, custodians, NFT issuers and platforms, and technology providers. Tiffany is a member of the Wall Street Blockchain Association and is a frequent speaker on financial regulation issues, particularly those that relate to crypto. 
And last but not least, the discussion will be moderated by Cato's own Jack Soloway. Jack is a policy analyst at the Center for Center at the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, where he focuses on the regulation of cryptocurrencies, decentralized finance, and financial technology. Let's get on to our discussion. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Thank you so much, Jen, and thank you to everyone, both here at Cato and watching online for joining us today uh, and lear uh, to learn from this uh, truly outstanding panel. So 2022 ended with a lot of eyes on crypto, but as Jen mentioned, uh, the distinctions between centralized and decentralized crypto projects did not always get the attention that they deserved. In addition, while there were highly anticipated pieces of crypto legislation introduced in the last Congress, uh, bills such as the Lummis Gillibrand Responsible Financial Innovation Act and the Stabenow Bozeman Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act ultimately were not passed last term. So I think now's the perfect time to both have a nuanced discussion about decentralized finance and also discuss what policymakers and regulators looking at the space should keep top of mind, if anything, as we enter the 118th Congress. I can think of no group of panelists better suited to do that with us. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to turn things over to them for their opening statements. Tiffany, would you please start us off? Sure. Um, working. Perfect. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Um, as Jennifer mentioned, my, my background is um, I've been focused on the regulation of financial intermediaries for the last uh, 14 years. And in that experience, I've always focused on the federal securities laws, the state, the state laws, and what applies to those entities holding other people's money. Right. And as we think about crypto and we think about the potential there, I see what is happening is that because there is a push for regulation, we're trying to, in some respects, blindly push the regulations that are that are really meant for centralized intermediaries onto all types of crypto and not really distinguishing between those projects, protocols where you have a single person who is making the decisions about how the protocol works versus the more decentralized projects and protocols where it's not really a single person, but instead it's a dispersed group of individuals. And we're going to talk more about what decentralization means, but my worry is that by forcing a set of regulations on a group or projects that don't necessarily meet the same that don't have the same standards and the same functions as centralized exchanges we are one this deciding as a policy matter that DeFi is bad and we're overlooking the benefits of the technology and really why it is that you have individuals opting in to these protocols no it always it always comes down to client demands right it's the fact that Historically, some centralized intermediaries have discriminated or not given access to certain groups, and that's why you have people who are underbanked or unbanked completely. And if you think about the rationale behind people wanting to opt in to these services, 
think you get an impetus to try to figure out how these are how these protocols are different from centralized exchanges and then figuring out the types of regulations and standards that make sense. I'm not suggesting that we don't have standards. And I think that some of the um, language and the verbiage from folks in the, in the DeFi and crypto community from years ago that we don't have regulations is totally false. We need to have regulations because anytime you're dealing with, with other people's money, we have to have those regulations. But we need to think about how DeFi is different, starting with the fact that these are very much in on their um, computer-focused native protocols where you have to worry about things like cybersecurity in a way that you don't need to necessarily worry about in the same way for centralized exchanges. So thinking about the differences in starting off um, starting off developing regulations from that point, I think is a good starting point. And how we get there is by having dialogues like this, having discussions and saying from the industry saying, yes, we understand that we need to have regulations. Yes, we understand that we must protect consumers. And then having the regulators understand that there is a willingness to engage and have regulation, a desire to have regulation, but the regulations we have for central intermediaries don't necessarily work for decentralized players and protocols. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. So uh, I think we face two crises um, that are very important uh, that, that kind of come to a head in this discussion. One is a crisis of competitiveness. Uh, you know, the number one class at Stanford right now is a blockchain class. We have some of the best developers in our in our country um, really focused on this technology and they're very excited about it. Um, they're, they're not going in with blind enthusiasm. These are people who have a real understanding of how technology is built. They see the logic and they're building things that go past what I'd say are the, like, the obvious use cases of blockchain technology, which is pure transactional. Um, they, these use cases apply to things like human organization, um, the you know development of art, uh, you know the nexus between um, social movements and assets. Um, there will be new concepts that come from this, but it's very important um, if the United States wants to maintain a position of competitiveness in technology general generally that um, we face the second crisis, which is a crisis of understanding between the private market and the um, and the government. So we have a legibility issue uh, in many cases, and I think DeFi, you know, focusing on, on one use, use case, is a very good example of this. Um, there are some very interesting and valuable use cases of this technology that um, do relate to moving large amounts of money, which do trigger um, you know, some of the duties of government um, and, and um, some of the purposes of regulation, but they also trigger some of the most important um, aspects of you know, privacy rights, um, of rights of citizens, of organizational rights. Um, and so if we're not able to have a discussion um, where we're honest about what the technology is capable of, um, then we're going to lose on the primary uh, crisis, which is the competitiveness. So my hope is that through today's discussion, we get to, you know, legibility to understand how we can be more competitive. I'm glad I got to go last so I could have some time to think about my remarks. <laughs> the thing I want to 
go back to every time I talk about decentralization. And in fact, uh, the semester just began uh, for Duke Law. So uh, I was uh, speaking on Zoom to a bunch of law students. And I found myself telling them or asking them, why decentralization? Why does it matter? Why are we even all here today? And I think that we need to step back and uh, go back to the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And I'm dating myself, but I remember my freshman year in college, nobody was sending emails. I think I was one of the first to do so, which is mind blowing, considering we all work uh, uh, on uh, not just Gmail, but connected uh, cloud services, Google Drive, et cetera. But uh, in, as a freshman at Duke, uh, I was one of the very few who actually emailed my friends and not that many people were using it at the time. But because of the internet, the forces of decentralization have really permeated through our economy. So it's not just in financial services today, but in retail services as well. And uh, I invite you to uh, take a look at Governor Lael Brainerd's speech. Uh, when I was at the Fed, we worked on what I thought was a really interesting speech about the uh, FinTech stack, right? So uh, a really good example would be, well, who has iPhones? A lot of us, I have an Android, but similar, you know. Uh, when Apple made the decision that it was going to be open to app developers, that made a huge difference. So it began with, you know, uh, the iPhone as the first layer, and the next layer was, you know, what came next were like messaging apps like WhatsApp, uh, Signal, et cetera, um, in Asia, Line, uh, WeChat, and then um, the layer building on top were like Uber banking services, things that we take for granted now. And then above that would be, you know, uh, retail services like, you know, I do all my shopping on Amazon, uh, but you know, I, I, I'm the first to confess. And I, I have, after having a baby, Amazon saved me. So uh, I'm forever grateful for that. But these are the, uh, when Apple opened up its, uh, small, its smartphone to, developers, did it imagine that all of this was going to happen, that we would end up having a digital economy, a data-driven economy? I don't think Apple did, but that is what we get to use now. And, and decentralization permeating through now financial services, we can't say for sure right now, what is it going to look like when my daughter grows up? But I'm anticipating it's going to be pretty amazing, but it also depends on what kind of guardrails do we want to set up now, which will shape how decentralization will grow and, uh, and, and as a market that will truly support a healthy Web3 economy that respects our data privacy, that ensures that we're able to control our data and is inclusive and open. So these are some of the things that I hope we'll get a chance to talk about in this panel.
Absolutely. Uh, and thank you all. I just wanted to make a note before we jump into questions that there will be time at the end of our panel uh, for Q&A from the audience, both folks in the room and listening online. If you are tuning in online and would like to submit a question, you can do so on our event page or on social media by using the hashtag CatoEcon. So jumping in, um, we heard the term decentralized, <clears throat> excuse me, and decentralization used a lot in those opening statements. Um, it's a term that has permeated the crypto space. Um, I was wondering, you know, what does that term mean exactly? Or what should that term mean? Uh, Dane, could you please unpack that for us? Sure. So there's a, there's a large debate on sufficient decentralization. Um, and I don't want to draw lines. So I'll describe to you kind of two degrees of decentralization. Uh, one degree is, you know, coordinated action amongst, um, you know, a large number of participants uh, with, with no core dependencies. So um, we can think of the governance of certain resources. Um, you could think of like water rights, for instance, where they affect a fairly broad, um, you know, distribution of people who have an interest and, and do want to come up with rules the, the proxy for that right now is typically governments because we haven't had a better you know, way of being more specific. But, um, you know, in a fully decentralized environment, uh, basically there's no specific human um, upon whom, like, the decision-making and implementation depends. Um, that is a pretty, like, radical concept, and it applies usually in fairly narrow scopes. Uh, it does apply, I think, in DeFi for simple operations. I think, though, that there is another kind of brand of decentralization, which is it's a novel form of organization that does bring together consensus amongst actors who are not necessarily under a corporate umbrella and have a rank-and-file relationship. Um, that consensus might be what should certain organizations or people who have an actionable right in this environment do based on our mutual decision-making. So how should we allocate an asset? Um, in that case, there are people implementing the decision, but there is a layer of, you know, effectively trustless control, the unlocking of capital based on kind of a, an accountability cycle. So is the accountability cycle like every moment instantaneous? No, but, uh, is there a limitation of the power that individuals can take in this um, environment based on the power of the consensus mechanism, which is decentralized organization, to either continue to distribute funds or not? Um, yes. So um, in that case, I would not call that like absolute decentralization, but I would call it consensus decentralization. And that's a very powerful thing to have as well. Uh, Tiffany, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Um, I'll just add. So I think Dane gave, gave a great overview, but I think um, just two things, two, two points I'll make. One, I think the the point about there being a range, right, is really critical when you think about it from a regulatory perspective, because if you think about how regulations are crafted, they're based on there being a person or a group of persons to whom the obligations to comply with the law apply. And so we're thinking about decentralized finance in particular, it's always about the 
not to draw lines, but it's also it's always about figuring out whether we're in a place where we are it we're calling it decentralized, but it's really decentralized in name only. And you see a lot of those quotes because when regulators say them and you had you call it decentralized, but there's one or a group of persons who effectively has control versus getting to the opposite extreme where it's truly decentralized and and the and you have gov- a governance mechanism that gives all of the token holders or whatever the structure is the um, ability to make decisions, but they don't have, but it's not just one person or a group of persons like in control. So that, 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 that range is especially important when we're thinking about how regulation could apply. Linda, how about you? Consensus mechanism and consensus decentralization. I love that term. That's fantastic. I'm going to think about that some more. So I was speaking about stacks earlier with the iPhone. It's also the case for for DeFi. So, and the first stack is the blockchain layer, and that's where the settlement occurs. And then the layer above that would be the stable coins. You know, how are you going to transfer value to one another on chain? You use usually a stable coin, and one day perhaps CBDCs. And then above that, that's when you start applying the the D apps, the DeFi apps, uh, to uh, um, to that whole ecosystem, and then aggregating all of this um, are oracles um, and other aggregators. So these are the you know very simplified um, stacks of the the DeFi ecosystem, and and as uh, Dane and Tiffany uh, have uh, explained earlier, there is a decentralization spectrum. And so I like to define it as, does any one entity or group of coordinated entities have a monopoly over any of these stocks, right? So uh, when uh, you uh, look at uh, DeFi protocols, and many of them are so-called DeFi protocols, they are not decentralized, and they are misappropriating the term, apply uh, a set of, um, and I'm borrowing this from Rebecca Reddick. She had three tests. I added a fourth. It's uh, Tiffany knows these tests very well. <laughs> Spent a lot of time talking about them. Um, the first is, where has the DeFi protocol been, been launched? Is it launched on a blockchain with only 10 nodes? Or is it launched on a blockchain with hundreds of nodes, right? Are there only 10 validators or are there hundreds of validators, right? So, so, you know, look at that. And then second test is when the developer team spins, spun off the DeFi protocol, did it truly spin it away from the control of the developer team or is it still under the control of the developer team, right? And three, the, that the governance, which is related to the second prong, is the governance of that DeFi protocol controlled by hundreds of, uh, of, of uh, voting token holders or only 20 of them, right? So it, there's a spectrum. Uh, it, you, you'll have extremes on both ends. And I think it's hard for policymakers right now to decide, well, what, what eventually really counts as decentralized. But, but keep in mind, there's a, there is a spectrum. And then finally, my final fourth prong is, where's the money? Who has custody of the money? Is it just like one 
entity or is it uh, lots of different entities? So these are uh, all uh, uh, tests that uh, you should keep in mind as policymakers to analyze and assess how decentralized is this protocol. Thank you. Um, I think that's a really great place to jump off from. So, Linda, you just mentioned protocols, dApps, um, nodes. There's a lot of different uh, players, features of the De DeFi ecosystem. I was wondering um, if we might be able to unpack that a bit more, maybe draw some distinctions between those concepts. Um, we hear a lot about the difference between, say, a protocol and a front end. Um, and Dane, I would love to get your thoughts on how DAOs specifically enter into the picture. So, so very good question. And what I'll say is that it's important to be precise about terminology here. Um, and I'll draw on Rebecca Reddick again. She wrote a fantastic article about, um, you know, the, the, the differences between the traditional financial kind of ecosystems and, and DeFi and how we terminology actually really does matter. So, you know, when we're thinking of, you know, kind of articulating the stack and we think of where DAOs stand, DAOs are, um, well, they're a community creation, and so they're in the beginning of blank slate. They almost have a big bang moment that I, I kind of liken to a moment of sovereignty. Um, I want to de-emphasize that point because I'm not liking it to a nation state that has the sovereignty of you know, the United States, but, but it is a group coming together with a blank slate of technology that implements the group's decision based on rules that are either decided um, by a founding team in the beginning or by consensus from the beginning. That's a very kind of nuanced point. But effectively what the DAO does is it governs a set of resources, a set of decisions, or both. Um, and that could be a very narrow scope. It could be as simple as red light DAO. Um, we could decide do we want the light you know, at the corner to be red or green. Um, at a certain time, and we could just set that, um, and then it would algorithmically respond to the smart contract as we've set it. Fine. It could also be much more complex. We could imagine, uh, you know, effectively a communal design or or nonprofit that is governed by committees that are, you know, distributed funds via um, votes on the DAO. And, and I guess what I'm trying to articulate is that DAOs, in some ways, stand separate from, um, you know protocols, uh, they, they interrelate. They are a feature of governing um, the protocols. If, if there is a flaw in a protocol, there are decision rules that can be you know, queued via the DAO and then implemented via DAO vote, um, input, output, right? Similarly with DAPs, which are effectively the, you know, you can think of it as a software built on a protocol that implements certain things given the you know, virtues of the protocol, the, the traits. Again, you can govern what that DAP does within a scope. It's very important to think about that scope, though, because there are other parts of ecosystems. There could be, you know, organizations, developer companies that sit adjacent that have certain rights. Um, as long as that's contemplated in the decision set of the DAO, I think that starts to um, ring true to some of the ideals of DeFi but also gives you an idea of the texture. DAOs are adjacent to many of the features in the Web3 ecosystem. Um, they aren't specific to any one feature. Thank you. So 
perhaps uh, making this a bit more concrete. So SEC Chair Gary Gensler famously has asked um, crypto securities exchanges to, quote, come in and register with the agency. Tiffany, I was wondering if you could shed some light on, uh, is that possible when it comes to decentralized crypto exchanges, uh, either in practice today based on current regulations or even in theory? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, Even for uh, for CFI crypto exchanges. Um, So so I'll say a couple of things. I'll start with the point about um, about decentralization um, uh, being a range is critically important. And as Linda said very eloquently, like people are misusing the term decentralized, right? And and so from a regulatory perspective, all we see is um, examples of when um, persons or a small group of persons have misapplied the term decentralized, and that's what the regulators have went after. Okidao is a great example. Sorry, CFTC, not SEC, right? But in in the order, it talks about how the founders talked about giving control over to the DAO to avoid regulation. So that's a pretty bad example, right? So what we have not seen yet is an example of whether or not you can have a truly decentralized exchange or protocol where you can apply the rules that typically govern central intermediaries. Do I think it's possible? Not really, like, right? So typically you have a, a person, a single person or group of persons that's responsible for, for completing certain disclosures, for completing certain forms, for being inspected by their various regulators. And if you truly have um, decentralized control over something, it's not clear to me how you can comply, how you can apply those standards to that protocol. And so I think what we need instead is some other standards that take into account the fact that like there is not a, a single group or um, or a single person that's in that's in charge of the exchange or whatever or broker dealer whatever it is, but instead you have this group. And thinking about okay, if we have this group, if we're if we're starting from scratch. And the goal truly is investor protection. Then how do you build that? Okay, it's it's important for for customers to know that their money is secure. What are the standards for custody? Understanding that we're not going to overlay the cust- the the custodial arrangements that work in the tradfi world to DeFi. Right. Next layer is okay. What types of disclosures should be made? Again, understanding that DeFi. It's different than TradFi, and people are opting into that. And once you start thinking about how you have these differences, then you can kind of start layer by layer creating something. But right now, we have no good examples. We have zero examples of a truly decentralized protocol or network being registered. And if you look, and putting aside the fact that CFI crypto exchanges are having trouble complying with the regulations, I think we were just talking about this at lunch, like the, there is an SEC regulatory structure for digital asset broker dealers called a special purpose broker dealer. And a couple of weeks ago, the SEC had a proposed rulemaking in that rulemaking, it says that 
zero, there's zero special purpose broker dealers. There's zero broker dealers, the SEC registration framework for entities that deal with other people's money. There's zero of them that have complied with the framework for having custody over digital assets. And so that shows you that we're at the infancy of really solving this problem. So I think it's going to be CFI first in the crypto, then we'll get to DeFi. But in the interim, I think we should be looking at the, the real risk to customers and coming up with solutions to protecting customers. And I know there's been a lot of organizations who, are, who have come out with standards for making sure that because these protocols exist and customers are opting in, how to protect customers, what the standard should be as far as, dis as disclosure. So that's a starting point. But as far as coming in and registering as a DeFi protocol, we're just a truly DeFi, pro DeFi uh, decentralized protocol. We're just not there yet. Linda, what would you say to a regulator that surveyed the DeFi ecosystem and said, yeah, that's all nice about decentralization, but in practice, it doesn't really exist. So still, come in and register, please. That's such a hard question for a number of reasons. Uh, the DeFi industry, even though it has uh, exploded uh, exponentially in the past three years, it's still very much in its infancy. And there are many more institutional participants than there are retail participants. So how would the regulator even get a regulatory hook because again, uh, into any of the participants in that DeFi, uh, uh, I wouldn't even call it DeFi protocol, but actually that DeFi system. So as I said before, there are, there are stacks and then there are multiple participants that all make that uh, DeFi protocol work. So to, to get DeFi lending through a DeFi lending protocol, there are um, not only the validators or miners in the blockchain, and there are also uh, the original developers of that protocol. Uh, there are the parties that put up the collateral, um, and uh, there are also parties like uh, centralized exchanges even that help to uh, help uh, customers access the lending protocols. And there are also self-hosted wallets where, you know, I could directly access the lending protocol. Again, nobody has a monopoly over that service. So I, I, I do struggle with how can you make that whole system go to any regulator to register. Uh, perhaps the approach is going to have to be an activities-based approach where it's going to have to be the whole ecosystem is registered, almost like a patent of sorts. Uh, I, am, I am literally brainstorming here. It's, I'm not, I am not condoning this idea. It's just I am um, just literally struggling with, with this very important policy question that all policymakers and, and, and people in industry alike are are uh, trying to grapple with, and it's going to take some time, and that's why we have to study these issues. And and I commend the EU for for deciding to do studies of DeFi first before regulating it. So that's what they're doing this year, and I really hope that U.S. policymakers will follow suit. 
So I would like to uh, also um, uh, bring in, uh, kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about, again, why, why does this matter? And the, if you look at decentralization, it's about re-empowering us as individuals with control over our own data. And uh, why do I say that? Well, let's take uh, social media, for example. Currently, Facebook is the one that controls everything I post um, to my account to, for my friends to see. And one day, I hope there will be a decentralized version of Facebook. And in some ways, decentralized is not the best term, right? Because it's really, it actually means that um, I, it's really a form of self-empowerment uh, of that social media service where I get to control what I post up there and no one can uh, take it away from me. And similarly with, with Google, um, I don't know if you guys read that article about that poor man um, in San Francisco who, whose baby son was sick and had an infection and he took a picture of his baby and sent it to his doctor, to the pediatrician, and Google uh, uh, blacklisted him from all Google services. So he lost not only his Gmail account, but also his uh, Google phone access. And it's been nine years, uh, even after clearing his name with the San Francisco Police Department, Google still will not give him back his data. So these are some of the things that uh, are really important issues that we need to think about that, that that dovetails is adjacent and actually core to what we're trying to do in, in decentralization and DeFi. Dane, what would you say to that? Sure, so I, I, think, um, I think that a lot of very important questions um, were just elicited. And so if I were, you know, given the um, kind of framework that you mentioned uh, by the regulator at first, I'd make a side point, which is that um, I'm going to assume that the decentralization point that you made is is the case, but I would I would argue that it's not. When anyone says it's clear that the case is X, uh, my my law professor Charles Freed used to say, "Hold on to your wallet." Um, like I, I think I'm not sure it's clear that you know these uh, assets fall under the securities uh, definition. But if if we assume that's the case, what is it that you want? to know because i don't think what you want to know about um, a DeFi protocol is what you want to know about walmart or what you want to know about amazon there are some very important questions that linda touched on earlier on, and, so, and so did tiffany um, you know about the genesis of the protocol sure you can talk about any company's genesis but who developed it okay um, what protocol is, is if it's a DAP? First, is it a DAP? Is it a protocol? Let's let's go there first. Um, you know, what what's its thesis? Fine. How many validators are on the network? All right. We're starting to get into questions that are specific to this technology um, that aren't contemplated by you know typical um, you know eight Ks, ten Qs, and ten Ks. Right? Um, what does a proxy statement even look like? Um, well. Uh, it may not even be a, um, a protocol that has elections, right? So is, it's a null set for so many things. If you were to fill in the blanks in most of the SEC's forms, 
the consumer would receive so little information and be so bewildered as to be in a worse place, quite honestly, with the, um, you know, the, the veil of approval. I realize the SEC does not approve the forms, but there is legitimacy in an SEC-filed form. Um, and it's a null set of information, so you'd be confident in absolutely nothing, um, and people would be, I think, worse off. So then we need to actually have the come in and talk to us moment where we're on neutral ground, um, entrepreneurs, people who are building, um, the advocates around them, actually feel comfortable talking about what it is these things do, and they're not met with the kind of um, typical, we don't believe there's any utility here. Like, you have to buy that there's actually a thesis in order to get to the discussion about what is it that's useful for people to know if they're going to purchase um, a token. Um, and I'd love to see that conversation begin. I think it's happening at places like this. Um, and if there were a genuine dialogue with regulators and policymakers who want to have that dialogue, I think we could get there. Whether it sits within the SEC or not, whether it's a security or not, I do think there's value to having a, a standard of rules, things like has the code been audited and by whom, um, that would be valuable for society. So maybe now's a great time to have that conversation. Um, Tiffany, are there any disclosures that you think would fit the bill that would be relevant? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, well, I think why well, I think I'm gonna steal some from Linda, who I think stole from Rebecca, um, who's essentially our fifth member of the panel. Um, um, so I think definitely understanding uh, how many nodes there are, right, is important. And we keep this has been mentioned a number of times. The reason that matters is that um, you the if you have a large number of nodes, you have more resiliency. So think about like days where I'm not gonna pick on the tech companies, I'm not gonna say names, but like when a tech company goes down and your apps are not working, like, right? So if you have a bunch of nodes, a bunch of folks, invalidators on a protocol, that gives the user a sense of resiliency. So if we're gonna use a protocol for a very important purpose, you wanna make sure that it's, that there's a lot of validators, a lot of nodes so that it can continue to operate, even if one particular group is having an issue. So I think that's an important disclosure from a resiliency perspective. I like the code audit function be, uh, 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 suggestion because there is, and I see this just as a securities practitioner, there is like what people say the code is supposed to do and how it's supposed to work. And us lawyers are reliant upon that. And then you get the people who actually write the code, and sometimes that's wrong. And so the SEC will actually sometimes ask to see the code. So I think that's critically important. And I think it kind of embedded in that is like um, making sure that we, we have standards so that we're not creating new issues by going to a decentralized um, use cases and economy. And I'm thinking about like issues like with discrimination and like some of the fair lending issues we're seeing now. We're going to code because it's allegedly better, but then we're writing in like, you know, discriminatory practices in code. So I think I would start with just a disclosure about um, the disclosure one about uh, about the resiliency of the network and then two, um, the code audits. Thanks, guys, for letting me crib yours. I love repeated messages 
more times you say it, the more people will remember it. These are really complicated. So, sorry, I, I jumped ahead of you. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, do you want to just uh, repeat that back in the mic for the folks online? Because yeah. I think it's a great point. Yeah, it's. I think it's a really important to to hear these messages over and over again because it's complicated. Stuff is not easy, and uh, I uh, I've been studying decentralization for a few years now, and I still don't feel like I'm an expert. I don't think I ever will be. It's uh, it is ever changing. There's always new uh, new issues, and I would very much want uh, our uh, policymakers here in Washington, D.C. to think about how this will help build up the Web3 economy for the future of the United States. It's, it's something I don't think we have a national strategy for. We certainly don't have a national data strategy. And this is part of it. This is part of like building, building up our economy so we can be competitive to crib off a few things. <laughs> no, I think, uh, and, and maybe one other point, this doesn't go to the specific questions asked because I think they vary based on um, the, like, the type or designation of the technology, if it's a DAP, if it's a protocol, if it's a DAO. But I think that the approach, um, particularly at the kind of beginning of this process, should be one of, okay, a strict bar on, um, on in intentional fraud, right? I realize that's a bit redundant, but uh, there are different varieties of fraud. If somebody intentionally lies, um, that should be met with a very strong punishment. I think that there should be a sandbox period effectively where we encourage people to make statements that explain what the technology is. And I think we should probably provide a private right of action for harms that result from negligence for instance, I don't think we've really explored what the private market, including like the plaintiff's bar can do here. But I do think that there should be a remedy for loss that's that's caused by an actor's failure to take care, for instance, um, that doesn't uh, amount to, you know, a black mark, like you did something that is almost criminal or criminal. Um, if it was entirely unintentional and, and done in good faith, it just wasn't done well. Um, I think that we have a great system for that, and that's the courts. Um, maybe abused sometimes, but that's probably better than regulation by enforcement. Um, so the method of um, of thinking about how you remedy wrongs within this disclosure regime is very important as well. So other items that could be helpful for disclosure would be key management. You know, how many keys are required to control the, the app or the dApp or the protocol, et cetera. That is very important because uh, whoever has control has the ability to change the code, change governance, et cetera. So that needs to be disclosed. And uh, is, it, is it five out of nine, like it was with the Ronin Bridge? Or is it, you know, uh, you know Forty um, out of uh, you know, uh, forty out of say sixty-five keys. Not that there's actually anything with that many keys, but but you know what I mean. So twenty-some keys, perhaps. That I don't even know what the range of keys are. Um, but when you start looking at uh, 
uh, say, uh, Ethereum or Bitcoin, uh, that's where you realize like that is actually a very large number uh, of nodes. And now, now I'm transfer. I am transitioning. This is kind of messy from the keys discussion to the validators discussion, but it's kind of similar as to who has control over um, the blockchain. And uh, I. Uh, like to bring up the uh, uh, the Nakamoto number, where you know each blockchain that's out there, they're not all created equal. Some of them can be controlled by a fewer number of of validators than others. So I think Bitcoin perhaps has the highest number of uh, uh, highest na uh, Nakamoto number, but even that number is only like twenty five. So uh, globally, twenty five miners could come together and control over 50% of um, the governance of, of Bitcoin. And, uh, and that's a much higher number than the number for Ethereum, which I have now bl uh, blanked on what that number is. Uh, I will get back to you all with that. But that these are things that I think um, are helpful for, for uh, individuals who cannot read code, I certainly cannot, uh, to be able to understand like, all right, like who, who has control, how many can get control, and where's the money? And so that's the other thing, like where's the money? Who's custodying um, the funds? Who's also custodying uh, the crypto collateral? I'll just add that uh, these are very important details from the outset, but because we're in a point of very flexible building, um, the factors can change very quickly. And so then we need a, like there's a question of how, what, what is the threshold of updating? Um, for instance, um, we might determine that we have a centralized treasury and that's, a, that's not a great idea because it's a hacking vulnerability. Maybe we want to break up our treasury into a thousand pieces to make it you know, more difficult to hack. Might not be a good idea, but let's just imagine that's the case. Well, um, we might then have sub, you know, custody, and then the question is like, how frequently? If if it's already subject to community governance, and there's a governance platform that's very, you know, reflective of every decision that, that's been made, that's not always the case. Um, then when when and where do updates need to be be made? And and do we permit rapid permutation, um, which could be very important, particularly given how quickly um, standards of code change and standards standards of practice? Like every hack, there's kind of an update as to best practices. Um, I think there's important questions around again the data that we actually want reported. Yeah, can I say one point on that? Like that's um, come on. Um, I think that's a even thinking about how often you update what's going on um, is is another reason that there needs to be a dialogue between the industry and regulators and just overlaying the CFI uh, regulations to DeFi don't work because if you're a broker dealer, for example, a securities firm, you generally need to update most things within 30 days, like, right? And that's like years in crypto world, like, right? And so that's just a, another great example of why there needs to be a dialogue. Another thing that, that Linda said that made me kind of think about as we're thinking about what types of disclosures might be important is like 
when you have discussions with regulators, sometimes there's a discussion about use case. Maybe they didn't say this. And I think part of, instead of having discussions about use case, there just needs to be an observation that consumers want to engage with these dApps, these networks, there's there's demand there. So what we need, and I don't know if we necessarily have this at the project protocol level or if we have it more broadly, but like some type of like investor education and not from a protectionist protectionism point of view, but instead like recognizing that the beauty of DeFi is broader access. And there's a promise of financial inclusion, but for to have financial inclusion, you actually need to make make people's, people's lives better with this access. In order to be able to shift from accessed access, people need to be under, understand like what they're getting, and if it's, it's the first time they have access to certain financial products and services, they might need more disclosure than the typical accredited investor uh, segment. Like right. And this was something that was in the Bozeman-Stabino bill. There was an investor protection um, uh, um, measure in there. And so we need to have some type of like somewhere, again, not sure if it's, you know, at the protocol level or something that's broader, but really describing to all of the investors that are participating, like what they're getting, what their risks are. So they truly are making informed decisions and not making the decision for them by essentially cutting off access to DeFi, but instead giving them the, the information they need to make their own decisions. So I, I think that brings up a, a great question. Um, we heard a little earlier about some, some of the ways in which uh, regulation designed for intermediaries is inapplicable when confronting the DeFi space. And Tiffany, you just mentioned the role uh, perhaps of regulators for financial education purposes. Uh, what might be the role of regulators here when confronting DeFi? Dane, Linda? I'll, I'll, I'll make a, a point that I, I think um, it builds on, on Tiffany's point, which is that uh, I think there's a role for centralized actors in this environment. Um, and I think a very good description of the role is, you know, there will be on-ramps for, for the, uh, the new users, right? Um, many of us of whom use them. Uh, and a very important function can be kind of education before somebody then decides they're gonna go self-hosted and, and engage with, you know, uh, complex DeFi ecosystems. And I actually think that there is a monetary incentive over time for centralized actors to effectively draw people in by being a great information source. Um, maybe you prefer Coinbase because they spell out for you what specific types of tokens do, and then they help you kind of move over to the self-hosted world. And at the point that you cross to self-hosted, um, you know, I, I, with enough information into the market, I think that you could be considered sophisticated, particularly if you figured out the pipe works that get you to a self-hosted wallet at this point. That may change with uh, you know, reduced friction and onboarding. But um, I think that, yes, there may be more rigid uh, requirements for centralized actors, but I think that there is a value-add service in it. Um, and so I see an economic incentive. Now, that needs to be fostered um, from a regulatory perspective and built in. That's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and it can't be adversarial. Um, it's, it's more about how do we work with an exchange to make them a preferred avenue for new users 
um, and, and potentially to make it profitable for them so that investors have an incentive to go to a place where they're more protected. Linda, is there anything you'd like to add to that? There's a lot that I could add to that, but I will try to keep it to something we haven't spoken much about so far, which is uh, TradFi and banks in particular. So uh, uh, everyone here, do you have debit cards? And I'm assuming you also have credit cards. Which one do you use more when you do daily transactions? Your debit card or your credit card? Credit card, okay. So you have statutory protections when you use credit cards. You also have statutory protections when you use debit cards, but they differ. So Truth and Lending Act governs your uh, credit card transactions and Reggie under the Electronic Fund Transfers Act governs your debit card transactions. When you send money, uh, an unauthorized transaction, so for example, perhaps you wanted to send money to me, but you misspelled my name, then you can go to your credit card company and ask them to reverse the transaction. And they'll also, as statutorily required, to automatically credit your account while they do the investigation. Uh, with banks, same thing. You can go to your bank and say, I sent to the wrong person. The bank can reverse that transaction, but you don't automatically get credited while they're, while they're doing their investigation. When you use Venmo and you send a transaction to me by Venmo and you misspelled my name and it goes to somebody else, then you have to hope to God that someone else is willing to give that money back to you because you're not protected by Reggie in a digital wallet to digital wallet transaction. Similarly, that's, that, that same gap is the case as well with uh, crypto activities. And we uh, have uh, revised um, our US private commercial laws, uh, which is the Uniform Commercial Code, and the states are in the process of adopting them. And Article 12 in that UCC uh, introduces this new uh, concept of controllable electronic records to represent the, uh, the concept of digital assets. And it's still not gonna be very clear what your, uh, even though we're trying to clarify property rights there, what are gonna be your customer protection rights uh, when something goes wrong? So I think this is an area that we still have to uh, work on. And in a world of decentralization, it's difficult because it's not like you can go to a centralized entity and say, reverse my transaction, right? You, again, you've been empowered to manage your own finances. So you make that transaction, you're responsible for it. So this is a new way of thinking and uh, something that we all are probably still going to have to keep uh, pondering. Before we turn to some audience Q&A, um, I wanted to ask the idea of rapid iteration and development in DeFi was brought up, um, but are there ways in which regulation itself can serve to be sand in the gears when it comes to that iteration? And more broadly, what types of regulatory snags do decentralized projects currently face? Um, Tiffany, I was wondering if you might be able to start us off there. That's a tough one. Um, <clears throat> 
So I, I think it's just a, a fundamental mismatch, as I was alluding to earlier, right? Um, because regulations are focused and geared toward the TradFi world, they don't necessarily take into account the pace at which DeFi um, changes. And so that's, so it's, it's just a fundamental mismatch, right? And so um, I think what we, what, where we're going to end up to the extent we get regulators to embrace DeFi and create um, standards, uh, they're going to be more principles-based um, so that even with the rapid change, they, they can continue to make whatever disclosures and comply with the applicable standards because I don't, because, you know, very um, prescriptive rules don't work when something is changing at a fundamentally quick pace. So if I were a regulator and I wanted to throw sand in the gears, uh, you know, I would, I would just create uncertainty. Um, you know, markets, and I say market broadly, I mean markets for ideas as well as markets with money, um, require certainty to function well um, or some degree of it. And so, you know, two things happen now. I'll give one example. You know, a certain founder who, you know, is now in prison um, almost got the hill to pass a bill that uh, had a bunch of DeFi kind of protocols in a very difficult position, which is they would have had to register um, and that would have been nearly impossible other than, you know, DeFi protocols that were still kind of in the, in the direction of decentralization. Um, that certainly sent a chill um, for development and I think discouraged people from launching any kind of new projects during the pendency of that bill. But then um, we also can look to some of the litigation. Uh, Buki Dow is certainly not, uh, you know, done from a precedent standpoint, it's still ongoing, but uh, it has chilled participation um, for venture capital firms in DAOs. Um, the lifeblood of a DAO is participation. If there are no participants, there is no action, and therefore there is no DAO. Um, and so, you know, bringing serial litigation, even if it's against defendants who are unsavory from all of our perspectives, um, if it's on issues that are directed towards sending a message toward people who are actually trying to comply, those people who are actually trying to comply are going to be faced with a lot of uncertainty. And so, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a messaging question, um, and that's a principles question about what we want with our uh, economy and our, our kind of technological development, but that is a, a source of um, sand in the gears. And to add to Lane's factor of uncertainty, I would like to also add lack of clarity. And uh, so I, I've been a regulator most of my career. I really believe in um, the, the work uh, that I did, and, and I can assure you that uh, most regulators really believe in the public service um, that they um, uh, uh, perform day in and day out. So uh, what uh, the transition for me when I went to a startup, uh, I think I was one of the first former regulators to work at a uh, crypto startup, it was uh, 
it was kind of mind-blowing. I suddenly found myself as a translator for uh, the uh, blockchain engineers, explaining to them what Washington's looking for, and then explaining to uh, to Washington policymakers what we're trying to do. And what we were trying to do was build a decentralized payment product. And uh, as uh, the the lawyer uh, and former regulator, you know, trying to design the product so that it was compliant with with the regs, uh, but compliant in in the sense that it's decentralized, so it does not have to be uh, registered with any particular agency. And one, many, I think many companies just stop there, be like, all right, I designed it, it's decentralized, I don't need a. Uh, bother with, with uh, regulators. But we took that product on a regulatory roadshow and met with every single regulator of consequence, including many key state regulators. And that in itself slowed us down by almost a year, but it was an investment. And it was investment because it helps to educate the regulators uh, but uh, and it was investment that you know once uh, we're out to market, then uh, we uh, can rest assured that the regulators understand this is a fully decentralized product. But sometimes we had to go back, and I'm not going to name which regulators, but you could probably guess we had to go back um, over and over again to explain how it was decentralized, and that uncertainty caused you know caused angst. But you know we were confident in our product, but it was a lot of extra work, uh, a lot of extra money, and you have to hope your investors are willing to wait with you. So the, so we you know were uh, blessed with with funding from large investors, but that's not always going to be the case for many you know uh, DeFi developers. So I think that's a great place to break for audience questions. Um, we have Zainab and Nick uh, in the audience with mics. Uh, raise your hand and they will come over to you. I see a question in the center there. Uh, thank you, uh, Bert Ely, a banking consultant. I'm not a lawyer, but I've done a lot of expert witness work uh, over the years involving uh, financial institutions. My question is this. In a DeFi transaction, let's say um, you've been, <coughs> pardon me, uh, feel you've been frauded in some way. Where do you sue? What, what court would have jurisdiction? Federal court? State court? And what law, if you get into court, what law would they look to, both from a statutory standpoint as well as a case law standpoint, in uh, resolving uh, a dispute? Thank you. Sure. Um, so that's uh, it, it's a great question, and I'm gonna give a very lawyerly answer. It really depends. Like, right? So we were talking about like there's a, a a lot of different use cases for DeFi. We talked. We were focusing first on securities issues, but then we started focusing on some of the banking issues. So the first question is, is the product mimicking one that was that's overseen by identify the federal regulator? And then from there, it really depends on where the customer is like located, what exactly happened. Like, right, if it's if if the if the customer was defrauded because of something that the protocol said that was a misstatement or omission, right? Then there could be an effort to try to go after the protocol. Then you have to figure out where the servers are, if it's truly decentralized. So it becomes very um fact specific. And I think we're at this point, um, as I was kind of alluding to before, where 
I don't know if we actually have good examples or good case law of um, when there's been instances of truly decentralized actors um, harming someone. Instead, all I can think of is instances where where the term uh, decentralized was was used, but there was like a group of persons or a person who was in control of said protocol, who was the, the target, just like it would be with any other corporation. And uh, I would like to add uh, the Ukidao case, the judge ruled that the Ukidao was an unorganized organization, which meant, oh, did I explain, was that the right term? Unorganized. Un unincorporated. unincorporated, thank you, I knew it was didn't get that right, unincorporated organization, essentially a partnership. And uh, that meant one, it could be sued, and two, the token holders could potentially have liability. So uh, that is a very recent development in uh, legal precedence, and that was in the Southern District of New York. And now we're starting to see patent trolls pop up they're like, oh, we can sue DAOs now. <laughs> and uh, you already um, uh, uh, see uh, instances, uh, including uh, with uh, MakerDAO um, being sued uh, by Patent Troll, and, and we um, are hoping to um, you know, submit an amicus brief on that, but you know, we're not MakerDAO, right? So we can only hope that we can explain that this is a decentralized organization, and uh, and the uh, there it is much more complicated than uh, what the uh, plaintiff is stating and or arguing. And so you uh, see that in that particular case, and we are expecting that there's going to be more this year. Um, now that you know this, uh, essentially this door has been opened. And so it, it is possible to sue, at least based on the uh, Uki Dao ruling, to uh, to sue DAOs. I will simply add that it's important, and this goes to the depends, to really identify the fact pattern of the the fraud. Um, there are certainly instances of people developing protocols that don't do what they say they do and, and it's fraudulent and they take money. Sue the developers of the protocol who made those representations. It's it's a lot more nuanced if we think of a transactional, peer-to-peer um, you know, -peer situation. Um, in many of these cases, there's not communication. So there could be hacking um, and, and that's, you know, that is a problem that we need to continue to approach from better development, um, you know, and, and I think that it's, there are also situations where somebody says, hey, here's a really good idea on Telegram, and somebody's like, all right, yeah, that's great, I'll send you the money to this wallet that I've, you know, never heard of, and that's, that's fraud, and you, it would be recoverable against the person who made the representation, but, um, in some ways, thinking about the generalized fraud problem, which is an important one, um, without getting specific, um, leads to a feeling that there's a void. But but part of the part of that feeling is actually a virtue, which is in many of these peer-to-peer -peer actions, there's there's not somebody that's 
making a representation. You're actually able to send it to a wallet. Now, there are a lot of errors, and those errors are usually a lack of education or um, you know, maybe a lack of sophistication of some of the front-end technology right now, and that's something for the market to resolve as well. So I think it's, it's a very good question. It has a lot of applications, but those applications are really important to decipher um, if we're thinking about making policy around fraudulent activity. Thank you. I saw a question over there. Uh, yes, my name is Roger Cochetti. I'm an editorial contributor on technology policy for, for the Hill newspaper. And my question is sort of related to the one you just answered, but it's it takes a step back. And I'm hoping that you all can tell me that my principal concern is misplaced in the sense that unlike all other forms of financial regulation from credit cards to mortgage-backed securities that I can think of, there are characteristics to decentralized um, financial blockchain-type uh, transactions or systems that are hard to see will change. One is that they are inherently global. So it's quite easy for me to locate my headquarters in Somalia, try to prosecute me there. If not, then I'll move to Panama. Whatever. Secondly, they are inherently anonymous. I don't, you know, I'm going to give you my name and address, my real name and address, so that you can file a lawsuit against me. Not likely. Um, and and thirdly, they are completely fluid, so it's easy to shift things around from Boston to Bangalore, you know, quickly. If that misgiving on my part is valid then the only recourse that, that, that territorially limited regulators like SEC or pick your favorite British or European regulator have is to come down hard on the whole thing, you know, because there's no way to, 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 to create regulations that are enforceable. And even OECD or Council of Europe, you know, don't solve the problem of anonymity, fluidity, and Globally, globality to the whole thing. So I hope I'm wrong, but please tell me I am. Sure, and anyone want to take that? Okay, it's uh, a lot of to unpack in there. So at least I'll I'll tackle one of them. It's uh, so uh, blockchain technology. It's commonly misunderstood as being an anonymous technology. It's actually a pseudonymous technology. So what does pseudonymous mean? It, it means that it is perhaps not your real name, but there's a name. And uh, there is uh, an entity or person attached to that, that account name. You can also choose to be fully transparent and have your identity fully on-chain as well. Uh, so, uh, uh, so there, is, so it is actually so to reiterate uh, to reemphasize again, it is not an anonymous technology; it's a pseudonymous one. And what I have been so proud of is to see that um, the largest amounts of money um, that have been prosecuted by the DOJ have been in blockchain. Um, is it because there's more fraud happening? on blockchain, 
uh, no, actually, uh, uh, blockchain uh, fraud is, um, and I am trying, I hope I get this percentage correct, um, it's maybe around less than 5% of all fraud total globally. Uh, uh, there's actually more fraud in, uh, in traditional financial transactions and certainly with cash transactions. So uh, going back to, again, like why I, um, I am so uh, pleased and also impressed by how successful the DOJ has been in uh, pursuing uh, blockchain fraud is because the technology itself has been leveraged to track the fraudsters and to also to recover the stolen assets. And that's because of uh, the technologies, abilities to, to, as an immutable ledger. And anyone want to add? So, so I'd say points one and three are interrelated. Um, and what I'd say is that, you know, on it's globality and an anonymity, and what was the third one? Fluidity. fluidity, right. So points one and three, globality and fluidity. Um, those are very powerful. Um, can be used both for good and for bad. Um, however, there has been a lot of success on the regulatory side in tracking transactions. So what, um, what seems like an advantage from a would-be fraudster's perspective of being able to move things around a lot also leads to very easy money laundering charges because you can see if somebody's trying to conceal something. Um, and so whereas it seems like a, you know, a great white space for um, people to move money around, um, oftentimes it becomes a trap. I do think in the past, before there was as much awareness and chain analysis and the likes, um, you know, it might have been easier for fraudulent you know, actors to move things around. And even for you know, secretive government agencies to you know, do things like pay assets, um, which is actually something we probably do want to do um, in certain circumstances. Um, let's put that aside. Um, I don't think that it's going to be very easy as we become more analytical in this space. Um, I think also, you know, I can't speak to the fraud number, but I believe that the money laundering identified has been something like seven to nine billion dollars. Sounds like a lot of money, but I believe that's less than 1% of the figures that you see in terms of global money laundering. And it prevents- uh, Not 5%, 1%. Oh, okay, well, for, for money laundering vis-a-vis uh, -vis fraud, you know, but, um, both, both important things to bear in mind. I agree that the technology can be used for bad. I think that you know, the, the, the second point is a very important one. Um, I, I would argue that you know, we have private modes of transacting, i.e. cash, um, which is, is a dark market, um, darker than, than crypto for sure. Um, I'm certainly you know, in favor of privacy rights around you know, money, and I think the Cato Institute's done great research on that topic, so I'll leave that point. But um, generally, the blockchain is not as anonymous as people think. Pseudonymity, you, you may not know as an individual actor who your counterparty is without being able to leverage um, the legal system, but um, there, there are businesses that are focused on recovery of assets, high-value NFTs, for instance, it's very similar to what you see in the litigation finance market with uh, high value asset recovery. Um, and so, do I think it's perfect? No. Do I think there are pitfalls? Absolutely. But do I think that um, the benefits are proportional 
and potentially much greater than the drawbacks, yes. And so I, I think those are good questions to deal with, but they are also touching on some of the virtues of the technology. Hi, Adrian Schogel, retired. Uh, I get a sense that we're actually begging the question, do we need regulators as the first level of regulation or rather as a regulator of private regulation? I mean, we've been, in international trade, we've been dealing across borders with fluidity and all sorts of things, and a lot of private institutions have come up. International Chamber of Commerce, letters of credit, international arbitration, choice of uh, contract, choice of law, all sorts of oh, uh, merchant clubs, all sorts of private devices backstopped by public regulation, but public regulation as, as the backstop, not the, the first stop. So do we actually, do we, what, I mean, I can see the development of all manner of private regulators, guarantors, and so forth. Is that an option? I mean, so I think it could be an option, and I think because of the differences between DeFi and CeFi, it could be a very good option. I think what we're grappling with right now is, especially in the events of the last couple of months, is regulators' desire to regulate and to, well, I should say, to enforce right now, like, right, and really lead with, um, with their enforcement tools to protect investors. So we're no longer at the point of where they don't feel the urgency to act very quickly, right? And I think if you really, if we had, if we were the, if we had the luxury of time and we we're at the very beginning stages of the industry developing, maybe we would sit with a whiteboard and think about like, what's the most desirable outcome, but we're kind of like, we're, at a place where regulators regulators want to enforce, and so we have to answer and address this regulation question because it's likely forthcoming based on their actions and statements. I tend to agree, um, and this, but this is personal, and, and you have to agree with the first principles um, that there are many economic remedies and, and court-based remedies um, that exist I, I do think that um, there is a value to uh, reducing the incentives, eliminating like you know some of the mass of bad actors that have been in the space. And for that, I think that you know the best thing that regulators could do is work. And I, I've made this point before, but I want to drive it home: work with the on ramps to um, educate the um, participants. Uh, the technology is available to anyone. It's, it's instantly accessible. The barrier to entry is very low. Um, I think that helping people to understand if they're walking into a black box, that there are serious risks, risks in doing that is, is a real important function of the traditional kind of um, front ends that bring people in. Um, I believe traditional remedies should be the, the first um, you know, recourse. But over time, as we learn more about the function of the technology, I do think there is a, a place for secondary recourse um, from, from public actors, but it has to be done in a way that is not preemptive um, relative to the value curve of what the, the, the technology can present. Um, otherwise, we're gonna lose the free market of you know, innovation. Um, other jurisdictions have kind of come up with frameworks that aren't perfect, but do, um, present a competitive proposition um, for developers. So uh, that was a few points, but I think private first and then 
there should be a public backstop. I'm not sure if this is going to be fully on point to your question, but this is what I thought of when you asked it. Uh, so uh, I buy a lot of organic food. If I have a choice between organic and non-organic, I generally buy organic because I have a five-year-old and I just want the best for her. Uh, is it really going to be better, that organic over non-organic? I'm not sure because there is actually no federal law that defines the standard for organic. Yet I believe it because uh, I, I do know there are standards that farmers have to follow in order to get the organic branding. I think that, that could happen as well in DeFi where uh, there can be DeFi developers who follow certain standards, certain technical standards and get uh, a special organic organic brand and uh, as a consumer I may want to go use that organic brand um, of DeFi so I could see that happening over time just a question relating to cybersecurity which each of you has touched on a little bit and this might be out of your area of expertise but I'm curious about standards cybersecurity standards um, how do you think about standard setting in this area? And you know, when it comes to cybersecurity standards, the federal government itself has never really spoken with one voice, and that's been an issue over time. How do you see that developing in the DeFi context? And if it takes time, or if it takes a number of years, what should folks in industry be doing until then? <laughs> Tough question, I understand, but I'd be curious your thoughts. I would love to take this one. Uh, so uh, when I was at Treasury and then at the Fed, uh, we participated in uh, a very important uh, uh, organization called FIPIC, which is an organization of pretty much all U.S. government agencies that share information on ransomware attacks, all cybersecurity attacks, and uh, that information is shared uh, uh, pretty quickly with the big banks um, that uh, regulated uh, by uh, the Fed and other banking supervisors in that, or, and they formed a, you know, their own committee called FISIC. So FIBIC and FISIC every year have this big cybersecurity uh, roundtable and simulation of a what happens if a big bank were attacked by uh, um, North Korea, then uh, in a ransomware attack, and that contagion spreads, what can the US government do to help? So they do this all year round, and, uh, and I think the blockchain, the crypto industry should be part of this too. Like we should also get alerts when there's a ransomware attack, or there, we should also get alerts when something we should be concerned about is happening. Um, it, it, the big banks are no longer the, uh, the only players to, um, that run the financial system. Uh, we have many other uh, new participants now that provide important financial services that should also get, get this information. So we're just about out of time. Any final quick thoughts from you, Tiffany, Dane? 
No, I, I mean, I'll just say that, well, first, um, thanks for hosting this very important discussion. Um, I've learned a lot by just hearing my fellow, my fellow panelists speak um, and even the audience questions. And I think what, what we're, I think the thing that stands out the most is that this is super complicated, right? And there's so many nuances and this discussion was very powerful, impactful for me, but and it really shows the imperative for policymakers to really learn and be educated before they make decisions. I'll conclude with, you know, let's take the counter position of my own and let's say that, you know, the only use cases for DeFi are bad use cases, uh, malicious uses and the likes. I disagree with that, but let's take that as a given. If we do not continue to study this technology, it will be used to our detriment. Mastering it will be a very important part of the future of, of finance. I think the future of you know human organizations as well. Um, but if we dismiss this, it doesn't go away. It just exists outside of our nation's expertise. And that's a vulnerability. I think there's tremendous strength um, and we can leverage this. I think we need to do so in a thoughtful way. And it's, it's not simply letting like a uh, you know, market run away with itself, but um, we have to have innovation and that requires having a reasoned dialogue between the private market and the regulatory sphere. Um, it can't be one or the other dictating the entire discussion. With that, join me in thanking our distinguished panelists. And back to the stage. Hey, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, there was a very thoughtful discussion and it really draws out all the nuances that are happening in this space. Um, thank you to the panelists. Thank you to the audience. Um, I'm glad to have you join us here today in person and online. There were a lot of takeaways, but I think for me, the most important one was the takeaway that this is a hard space and it's a complicated set of issues. And there's not nearly enough being attention being paid at this point in the regulatory discussion to all of these difficult questions that need to be addressed when thinking about how or if to regulate in this space. A recording of this program will be available shortly in case you missed any of it or would like to share it with others. And we hope that you'll continue to join us for these discussions. We here at Cato have been engaging with these issues, including by putting out a working paper proposing a framework for crypto exchange regulation that differentiates between centralized and decentralized exchanges. We welcome feedback on the ideas that we propose, and we hope that you will follow our work at Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives for more on crypto regulation. Thank you very much, and have a great afternoon. <laughs>